0: Good morning everyone and welcome to our uh, monthly San Diego Ramana Maharshi study circle for a full two hours on this particular Monday on Sunday rather with Michael James who joins us uh, live from London internationally known scholar of of Ramana's teachings uh, has been on this circuit for a long time around the world with people in uh, zoom live calls such as this one and with us here in San Diego for the last several years and if you're watching us on YouTube and would care to ever join us live on a Sunday and be able to ask Michael directly questions about your journey with Ramana's teachings, please feel free to do so. Just send an email quickly to me. I'm Ted, NewsGuy55 at AOL.com. N-E-W-S-G-U-I-5-5 at AOL.com. Now. Hello, once again to you, Michael, and welcome. And we're going to get started with question number one. And I'm happy to see that Canal's here. Uh, the first two questions come from Canal and Gotham, and they're both here. So I'm happy for that. And Canal asks When we practice self inquiry, Michael, isn't the I also a thought? Because when we sleep, even this I thought, which appears in mind while well, self inquiry disappears altogether in sleep. Up to you now, Michael.
1: Right. Um, are you a thought? That is, when we talk about I being a thought, I is referring to ourselves. are we a thought? Obviously we're something more than just a thought. There is only one I. And we are that one eye I. I mean there's, there's no eye other than ourselves, so we that i is one however, what I actually is is devoid of all adjuncts. it is just pure being, pure awareness uh it is what is called sat chit sat chit means existence awareness or being or awareness that is what we actually are. That is the pure eye, the eye uh, devoid of adjuncts. When the same eye is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, it is what is called ego or the thought called I. The reason why Bhagavan said it is a thought, though obviously the pure eye is not a thought, it is the fundamental reality. But the adjuncts with which this pure eye now seems to be uh, Mixed and conflated are all thoughts. That is, the, the adjuncts mean this: this person we take ourselves to be, this body, mind, and so on. Um, in technical uh, uh, terms, it is called uh, a bundle of five sheaths. Five sheaths. The five sheaths are basically the, this, uh, the physical form of the body the life that animates the body, and the mind, intellect, and will that function within the body. These we experience collectively as I. But obviously they're not I, because they're all objects known by us. So, this confused awareness, I am this body consisting of five sheaves, I am this person, that is what is called, That that is a thought. So that is what Bhagavan referred to as the thought called I. So the thought called I is what is otherwise known as ego. But though it is a thought, it is a thought unlike all other thoughts, because all other thoughts are objects known by this first thought, I. So the first thought, I, is the subject. All other thoughts are objects. Objects are all jada. That means they're devoid of awareness. What, it, what is aware is only, well, the, the real awareness is only the pure I. But the only thought that is endowed with awareness is this first thought I. I am such, such a person. I am this body. When we are investigating ourselves, we want to know what we actually are. So, We need to understand, obviously, before we start, we need to understand what we are not. We are not this body. We are not the mind. We are not the intellect. We are not the will. We're not any of, any, anything that appears or disappears is not what we actually are. So what we actually are is only the pure I, the I devoid of all adjuncts, bereft of all adjuncts. So this, this, the pure eye is the reality of ego. Ego is the I don't mixed awareness, but this the awareness aspect of this that is the the I am portion of in this mixed awareness, I am this person, <clears throat> I am this body. I am is what is real. that is the uh, is the awareness that is such it that is the what is aware. the pure eye, is never aware of anything other than itself. But when we experience ourselves mixed and conflated with adjuncts, one important point to note here, what is aware of adjuncts, what is aware of this conflation, is only our self as ego. It's only in the view of our self as ego, but we seem to be mixed and conflated with with adjuncts. From the perspective of the pure eye, which is a pure being, pure awareness, there is no adjuncts whatsoever. There is only nothing other than ourself actually exists. But when we rise as ego, we seem to we, we we as soon as we rise as ego, we project um this bundle of adjuncts called body. We experience this body as I, and through the five senses of this body we project a world. Um <clears throat> so when Bhagavan talks about the Thought called I, he's talking about ego, this adjunct-conflated awareness. It is not a different eye. There aren't two eyes. It's the same eye, but seemingly mixed and conflated with adjuncts. So, but when we are investigating ourselves, what we what we want to know is what we actually are. So what we need to investigate is not the adjuncts, not the, this body or mind or anything. We need to investigate only the fundamental. I am portion of ego. That is the, the essence of ego, the, the reality, the heart of ego, what ego actually is. So when we're attending to ourselves, what we seem to be attending to is ourself as ego. That is a, a thought. But what we're actually attending to is only the pure eye. We can understand this with a simple analogy. If you see if it was we, we we see a snake, sorry, we see a rope in the dark, we mistake it to be a snake. It seems to us that what we're looking at is a snake. But if we look at it carefully enough, what will we see? Oh, it's not a snake, it is just a rope. Likewise, what now seems to be ego is actually only the pure awareness I am. But so long as we experience it as I am this body, we are not experiencing it as it actually is we are mistaking one thing to be another thing just like we mistake the the snake to be a rope we are mistaking ourselves to be this set of adjuncts this uh, person or body that we now take ourselves to be so In some contexts, Bhagavan described this practice as investigating the thought called I, or investigating ego, but he also clarified that when we investigate ego, what we're actually investigating is not the adjuncts, but only the essential I. So the the answer to this question, whether the I that we're investigating when we Um, when we investigate ourselves, whether this I is a thought or not. Yes, it seems to be a thought, but if we look at ourselves, when we say it, I mean, I seem to be a thought, but when I look at myself carefully enough, I see that I'm not a thought. I'm just that pure awareness, that fundamental awareness. Just like I seem to be looking at a snake, but if I look at the snake carefully enough, I'll see it's just a rope. Um, Kunal, does that adequately answer your question? Or do you have any further questions to ask in this regard? Or is my uh, answer not clear enough?
0: I do get uh, put-
2: what you're saying. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, we can. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yes. yeah I do get what you're saying, but uh, I believe what you're saying is our consciousness is like empty nature, but uh, our mind and the thought occupies it. So it latches on to the thought and then we believe that uh, that thought is Something what we are even to say consciousness, right. even to say consciousness is empty, pure consciousness is empty, is not exactly correct. It is empty of all it phenomena. Is that is there are no objects of awareness. When we say consciousness is empty, it's empty only from the perspective of ego, because ego takes the uh, objects that it knows to be contents of consciousness, but actually consciousness is never empty. Consciousness is always full. It is, it is, its very nature is fullness, but what it is full of is not subject and object, not phenomena, but only itself. It's full of, it's, it's the fullness of being, the fullness of awareness. Uh, so it, it's, Empty only in the sense that it's devoid of all content. Is devoid of all. Is devoid of both subject and object. But actually, it's fullness. Okay. You, so, how it, do we actually empty the contents of the consciousness or the fullness? If you if you look at the snake carefully enough, you will see it to rope. So whatever you now experience as I, look at that carefully. In other words, that keenly attend to yourself. And if you attend to yourself keenly enough, then you will see what you actually are. So it's just a okay. matter of turning okay. our attention back within to face ourself alone. Ourself obviously isn't an object. Ourself is uh, not even the subject. Ourself is... Uh, reality underlying the subject, namely the pure awareness I am, that is what we need to attend to. That is the one thing that we are always clearly aware of. We are always clearly aware of our own existence. There is never a moment when we are not aware I am. Throughout the waking state, we're aware I am. Throughout the dream state, we're aware I am. Throughout sleep, we're aware I am. The difference between sleep on one hand and waking and dream on the other hand, in sleep, we're aware just I am. In waking and dream, we're we're aware I am, but not just I am. Firstly, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person. I am Kunal, I am Michael, I am whoever. uh, Secondly, as a result of our being aware of ourselves as this bundle of of five sheaths we are consequently aware of the semi existence of other things but what is the one oh. the one continuity the one the one thing that is co- continuous but is permanent is only our own existence I am so that is what we need to investigate yeah I got it thank you It may seem seem to be a thought, so long as it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts. But if we look at it carefully enough, the adjuncts will drop off and the pure awareness I am will remain. Why will the adjuncts drop off if we hold on to or look carefully at this um, fundamental awareness I am? Because these adjuncts are not holding us. We are holding the adjuncts. That is, as soon as we raise this ego, we grasp these adjuncts, and our attention goes outwards. When we turn our attention back within and try to hold on to our own being, we are thereby withdrawing our attention from everything else. In other words, we're letting go of everything else. Since we're letting go of these five of these adjuncts, the adjuncts will drop off because they they they, they, they they're not holding us. They they, they seem to be. Um, binding us only because we're holding them. They are never holding us. So all we need to do, instead of holding on to these adjuncts or anything other than ourselves, we need to hold on to ourselves alone. Hold on to means we need to attend to that. We need to be steadfastly self-attentive. Of course, when it comes to practice, because we have so much liking to go outwards, when we try to hold on to ourself, our attention will keep on slipping away. But this is why Bhagavad emphasised, the only way to succeed is by patient and persistent practice. It doesn't matter how many times our attention slips away from ourself, we need to bring it back and fix it on ourself alone. And it's only by this practice that we will eventually... Uh, uh, well, by this practice, we are strengthening the love to look inwards, and we are weakening the inclination to go outwards. So eventually, this love to look inwards will become stronger than the inclination to go outwards. We will then be willing to turn fully within and subside back within. But that can come only by practice. There's no, there's no substitute for practice. Some people ask, is isn't grace necessary? Yes, grace is absolutely necessary, but it's not a matter of grace or effort. But whatever effort we make to turn within is only the working of grace. Grace is not something external to ourselves, grace is what is always shining in our heart as our own being. So, grace works through us by giving us the liking to turn within. And the more we turn within, the greater uh, the more we are. Uh, Uh, the the more we are cultivating and um, and feeding and nourishing that love to turn within. So grace and effort are not two alternatives. Effort is absolutely necessary, but but whatever effort we make to turn within is only the working of grace. Without grace, we wouldn't even have the inclination to turn within. So Grace is necessary, effort is necessary, because grace works in the form of the effort we make to turn within, the love we have to turn within. That is, we make that effort because of the love. That love is grace shining in our heart.
0: Should we move on now, Michael? Yeah, sure. Okay. And by the way, the grace, I mean, the the, the practice for me has to be every day. It's like building a muscle in my arm or something. If I don't do that, it just falls away. So I've got to stay consistent with it.
1: Every day is insufficient. Every moment is what we should be aiming <laughs> Every for. Every moment. <laughs> Thank you. That I'm not, helps. I'm not saying that we succeed, but that is what we should be aiming for. Very good. Because there's are not a moment when we are question. not aware I am. So why shouldn't we hold on to this I am? Because yeah. we have so much interest in other things. That is the problem. That is yeah. what needs to be renounced.
0: Well, I'm at my age no, I have I less know. and less interest in everything else and this is number 1 so I'll make it every minute from now on.
1: Oh, so <laughs> not, not every, every minute, every, question, every minute. moment.
0: <laughs> Gotham is next with a question and it's a pretty good one and it goes like this gross gross mind gets frustrated gross mind gets frustrated in accessing self as it constantly looks for an object called awareness. What is subtle mind, Michael? And what is its role in knowledge of self inquiry? And what's an easy way to access subtle mind?
1: Is mind one or two? Mind sure. is obviously, obviously, mind is only one. The outward going mind is gross, the inward going mind is subtle. It's the same mind, but the more we, we, allow the mind to flow outwards, the grosser it becomes, because when, we, when our attention is going outwards, we're constantly latching onto objects, to phenomena, which are all gro- gross. When we turn our attention back within, the more we go within, the subtler and subtler the mind will become. So how to access the subtle mind? By looking within. But we, we, subtle mind is not our aim. Our aim is to know what we actually are. But in order to know what we actually are, we need to look within. And to the extent to which we look within, our mind is thereby refined, purified, clarified, and made and thereby made more subtle. Regarding this um, gross mind gets frustrated in accessing self, as it is constantly looking for an object called awareness. This is why we need to, we, we cannot practice self-investigation correctly without correct understanding. What we, are, what we are investigating is not any object. So long as we're investigating any object or looking for any object, that is not self-investigation, that is object investigation. Self-investigation means attending to ourself alone. And we are obviously not an object, Though now we identify ourselves with a set of objects called this body and mind, what we actually are is just the pure awareness. I am. That is what we need to investigate. That is, I am can never be an object. I am is our own existence. It's our the, the reality of the subject. The subject is ego. Um. Um, when that ego is going outwards, we call it; it can be called gross mind. When it's going inwards, it, to the extent to which it goes within, it becomes subtle. But um, the, what we are investigating is not even this ego. It is the reality of ego. That is, ego is the agent conflated awareness. What we are trying to fix our attention on is only the fundamental awareness: "I am." So we're trying to see beyond the, uh, the adjuncts to see what we actually are. And we can see beyond the adjuncts only by turning our attention away from the adjuncts back towards ourself. To the extent to which our attention is fixed on ourself, it is thereby withdrawn from everything else. Gautam, is this a, a clear answer to your question or do you have anything further to ask? Yes, uh, after turning inwards, as we know that self is actually uh, formless and it is not to be identified like an object. It, but is, not it. it uh, is not it, it is I.
2: Yes. So, uh, when uh, to, to identify the uh, I,
1: the last point, with the I, that's where the
2: connectivity is not with that I.
0: You're breaking up a little bit, Gautam. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. if Michael understood I, the question. I,
1: I, I didn't understand. It wasn't clear. Yeah, it's a, a technical yeah. issue. Um,
0: You're breaking up a little bit. Try it one more time.
1: Yes, yes. So after 20 years, if I have to identify myself as the Self or the I, the connectivity is not what, what is the way? You don't have to identify yourself with anything. We can identify ourselves with something other than ourselves. But our aim is to see what we actually are. So it's not a matter of identifying ourselves with something. That is this Aham Brahmasmi, uh, I am awareness. This type of meditation, this is, Bhagavan said, that is not the way. It is only weakness of mind to go on thinking like that. Do you need to be always thinking, I am Gotam. I am Gotam. You know very well you're you're Gotam. It's only if you're if you're losing your your memory or something you have to constantly remind yourself i am gotam but you always remember i am gotam so you don't need to meditate i am gotam just like you don't need to meditate i am gotam you don't need to meditate i am brahman or i am this or i am that all we need to meditate on is i alone i that pure awareness i am That is what we are to, because that is what we actually are, so that should be what we should meditate on. But that is obviously not an object. As I said, it's not even the the subject, it's the reality of the subject. But though I is not an object, it is the one thing that we're always clearly aware of. Are you not clearly existing and shining now? Supposing you were in a completely dark room or even not even just in a dark room, supposing you're in a, a, a sensory deprivation chamber. So you're, you're not, you're, there's no, nothing is impinging on your five senses. There's no, there's no sights, no sounds, no tastes, no tactile sensations, no smells. You're completely deprived of any access with anything else are you not clearly aware of your own existence? You wouldn't know about anything yes. else. What, what may be happening outside the sensory yes. deprivation chamber, you know nothing about that. But you, con- you continue to exist and shine as I. That is what you need to attend to. We don't even need to go into a sensory deprivation chamber. That's all modern um, scientific uh, contraptions. Just go to sleep. In sleep, do you not still exist? Do you not still shine in sleep? We do. No. So th- that is what we need to attend to. That which is existing and shining permanently throughout all the three states, that is I. That is what we need to attend to. That is not an object. That is not something other than ourselves. That is what we actually are. That is ourself. And so, Attending exactly. to that just, alone is, is self investigation. So, can you elaborate the process of attending to the self? You're looking at a screen now, aren't you? Yes. Can you can you elaborate on this process of looking at a screen? At least you can say something about yes. looking at a screen. I have my eyes open. I yes. look. My eyes are yes. directed at the screen. Exactly. Because the screen is something other than yourself, but to to attend to yourself, there's nothing. There's nothing to elaborate on. It is the <laughs> simplest of all things. Any elaboration <laughs> is something other than yourself. We just need this. What we need to do, we need to read Bhagavan's teachings. His uh, that is his actual teaching, what he himself wrote. We need to read it attentively, so we grasp what he's actually saying. We need to think about it carefully in order to make sense of it, and then we need to put it into practice. So, what Bhagavan has asked us to do is incredibly simple. There is not even a child knows I am. Even an ant knows I am. Every sentient being knows I am. They may not know it in words. Obviously, a, a small, an infant doesn't have words. Uh, uh, and doesn't have words, but still they know their own existence. So that which is the, our own existence is what is always shining. It is the, as Bhagavan said, it is the screen on which all this, these phenomena appear. In a s- cinema, you've got a screen and pictures are projected on it. Analogous to that screen is this fundamental awareness, I am. Everything we experience is super, is is projected on that. So we are we are trying to hold on to the ground, to the substratum, to the adhara, the because we are that. That is what we actually are. We're not to meditate, I am that. We have to we have to we are that and we need to look at ourselves to see ourselves as that. Beyond this word, words have words are limited. Words, yes, language and words are for ref, talking about things other than ourselves. But the one thing that words can never reach—that is the closest we can come in words to ourselves—is I or I am, because these are the natural words. It doesn't matter what language it is, whether it's English or any language, the, the first person pronoun and the the verb the, the verb to be but goes along with that, that is I and am that is the natural name of ourself. the Bupani should say I am Brahman uh, Masi, you are that but do we go around saying Brahman uh, Brahman has got a headache Brahman is uh, feeling tired today no we say I because I is the natural name of ourself. The reason why the Mahavakyas are, why it is said, you are that, or I I am Brahman, because till now we've been looking outwards for something. We're looking for some god or some Brahman or some happiness or something outside ourselves. So the purpose of the Mahavakyas is to turn our attention back to look at ourself alone.
2: Well, sure, so
1: once we once thank we you, understand yeah. that we are Brahman, we can forget about Brahman. Yes. Because the very purpose of the Mahabhak is, is to turn our attention away from the thought of Brahman. Because we take Brahman to be something so long as we use the word Brahman, we're talking about something that seems to be other than ourselves. So to take our attention away from Brahman back towards ourselves, they say you are that. There is no Brahman whatsoever other than you. So if you want to know Brahman, know yourself.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Goldham. Michael, by the way, you said a couple of times, and I've heard you say many more than just a couple of times, to read Ramana's own words. There are thousands, tens of thousands of words written about Ramana. I know you have in your possession, because you've uh, you you've formulated a series of PDFs about mm-hmm. Ramana's, uh, Ramana's own words, Uh, I think I have them stored someplace in my file here, and if anybody would like those, if they haven't read just his words alone, send me an email to the news guy address, and I'll send it back to you if it's okay. Uh, You do have them all collected, right, Michael? Um,
1: Well, no, not exactly. Um, Bhagavan's original writings are relatively few. I have tra- some of those that I've translated are available on my uh, blog or website. Good. Others I'm still working on. I'm hoping over the course of the next few months or so to complete and make available my translations of all of Bhagavan's original writings, which are relatively few. That is, the main prose work is <clears throat> Nana, Who Am I? That's just 20 short paragraphs. Other works are total, I think it's about 250 verses. There's Uludu forty oh. verses, Upadesha Undia, thirty verses, Amma uh five verses, uh Panchikam, five verses, um uh um, Apalapatu four verses, um uh Anabandam, forty-one verses, um and um, uh, there are about 27 other straight uh, miscellaneous verses that Bhagavan wrote which Sadhuam gathered together under the name Upadesha Tanipakal. And then there are the five hymns. The five hymns are Arunachya 108 verses. That's the biggest of them, but they're just, those verses, each verse is just one line. Uh, then Arunachala Navamani Malai, the nine gems. are Padikam, the 11 verses, Arunacha Ashtakam, the 8 verses, and Arunacha Pancharatnam, which is 5 verses. So, in all this comes to about 250 verses. So, Bhagavan, that is, this is the collective works of, if you can see it, I, I don't know, this is the collective works of Bhagavan in Tamil. But most of this is works that he translated. Actually, what he himself wrote. It comes to about um, Michael just about, 50, about fifty pages in all. So it's it's Bhagwan has written very little, but in that very little that he's written, he's packed everything. All that we need to know is all contained in his own writings. That is the are heart you, of you, his teaching, the core of his teachings. <clears throat>
0: Michael, we have it? a
3: we have a question in chat from your related questions. If,
0: Hold on, okay. we're not going to those yet. We're, we we try to get to the questions printed, but we'll yes, but it's
3: related to the question that someone asked. That's why I brought it up.
0: Yeah. Well, the next one's tied to this one too, uh, but I want to finish what you're talking about for one second, there, Michael. And that yeah. is, uh, you you say you're going to spend the next couple of months finishing your translation. of yeah, and making this... them available online. Yeah, and, and later they'll us... be made
1: available in books.
0: Yeah. So please let us know when, when that happens, because uh, I would like to make those available to everybody else too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Marty, which one are you talking about? I'm looking at a lot of uh, postings on chat, which we want to get to. I've talked to her before. We're going to get to those uh, when the time comes okay. up, but Mukta, I'll read it. Uh, can we say that being in meditation is being in I as we are not attached to the thoughts or body at that time? That's our question, Michael.
1: If we are meditating on I, we are not just being in I, we are being I. That is, by attending to anything other than ourself, we rise as ego. The false awareness, I am this body. To the extent to which we attend to I, ego subsides and we remain as that pure I. So knowing our, as Bhagavan said, being ourself alone is knowing ourself. Yeah. So by attending to ourself, we are being ourself. To the extent to which we attend to ourself, to that extent, we are being as we actually are. Being as we actually are means not rising as ego, just being.
0: And I've heard you say before, if I got it correctly, it it sounds like something I was taught to do in the fourth grade, but sometimes those are the best lessons to simply repeat to yourself over and over again, not just I, not just I am, but even I would be sufficient to help solidify in your, in the basement of your consciousness, your own true identity.
1: It can, it can help. It can help particularly at the early stages to, um to, Repeat, or at least once or twice, remember the word I. Because what does the word I refer to? It refers to ourself. Yeah. But we need to go beyond that. Obviously, that's, that's a, a support to help us familiarize ourselves with what it is to be self-attentive. Mm-hmm. Once we've grasped what it is to be self-attentive, then words become superfluous. Even the word I becomes superfluous.
0: Well, that leads directly into the next question um from somebody i don't believe she's here maya chopra i'll uh, I'll have to check the next page because we have a lot of uh, viewers today uh regarding i and she says if it's okay to move on now to the next question yes okay for 60 years she says i was conditioned to believe that i am this body and thoughts weren't we all (laughs) now that i understand in theory that i am none of these but consciousness and that my nature is bliss. To keep mind fixed on myself, I need to know what is myself, which is not this body or mind. How do I exactly attend to myself or be self-attentive when I do not know where the self or myself is localized? And can you please explain just be with an example?
1: Okay, firstly, When we, if we say, I am conditioned to believe that I am this body and mind, we, it is not anyone else who has conditioned us. And we, it's not just a belief, I am this body or mind. It's actually our experience. I am sitting here. I am thinking, I am talking. That is my experience. So it's not just, I believe I'm this body or mind or or thought. I, that is actually my experience. But though it is my experience, it is a false experience because I am, this is not what I actually am. So we shouldn't take it as something coming from outside. When we talk about conditioning, it implies something outside is conditioning us. It's the very nature of ourself as ego to project and experience ourself as a body and mind. Um, and the body I- and mind we, this bundle of five sheets. We we though we can uh, analyze if this is body, this is mind. We experience them collectively as I. Um, when I say I am thinking, or I am talking, or I am sitting, what is thinking is the mind. What is talking is the speech. What is sitting is the body. But I don't experience these as three separate eyes. The same I that is thinking, the same I that is sitting, the same I that is speaking. So we 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 this, this bundle of five sheaves, we uh, that is the the physical form of the body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will. We experience these collectively as I. So this is our actual experience, and it's All everything else that we know is based on this experience. It's only when we experience ourselves as this body, consisting of five sheaths, but we experience other things. In waking and dream, we're always aware of ourselves as I am this body. Not the same body; it's a different body. But experience, I am this body, is the same. And because and whenever we experience ourselves as I am this body, we're aware of the existence of other things, things other than ourselves. In sleep, we do not experience ourselves as I am this body. Therefore, we're aware of nothing other than ourselves. We're aware only I am. Um so that's the first point to clarify. It's not just a matter of believing, and it's not just a matter of being conditioned. This is the very nature of ego is to experience ourselves as I am this body and mind. Um, and when, you, um, when Maya says I am this body and thoughts, actually we don't experience ourselves. Loosely we say we experience ourselves as the mind consisting of thoughts. But actually if we analyze our experience, look at our experience a little bit more closely, these thoughts are things that we experience as objects other than ourselves. Who knows these thoughts? I do. So I am a knower. The thoughts are things known, and the same applies also to the body. Though this body seems to be ourselves, we are also aware of it as an object. So this this awareness, I am this body, is a confused awareness. It it is a uh, this is the fundamental confusion, and it's. Through the filter of this fundamental this, this fundamentally confused awareness of ourself, but we know all other things. So when our awareness of ourself is confused, how much more confused must our awareness of all other things be? That is, when we don't even know what we ourselves actually are, how can we know what anything else actually is? so that's the first point to clarify the second thing is she uh, she goes on to say now i understand in theory but i am none of these but consciousness and that my nature is bliss yes that is we in theory means we understand conceptually if we think about it carefully it's clear that though i seem to be this body and mine this is not what i actually am What I actually am is only the fundamental awareness I am. We can understand this conceptually by considering these things. Once we've understood these things, what do we need to do? We then need to investigate ourselves to see what we actually are. So she goes on to say, to keep my mind fixed on myself, I need to know what is myself, which is not this body or mind. That is... Are we not all clearly aware I am? Now this awareness I am seems to be mixed and conflated with this body. But if we think about it carefully, this body is an object. This mind is an object. I am the subject. So we've already, by, by thinking carefully about this, we can already begin to separate ourselves from this body and mind. So we begin to recognize, first thing we recognize, is I'm not any object; I'm a subject. But even with, even to say I am a subject is not the ultimate truth about ourselves, because the, we experience ourselves as a subject only in waking and dream. When we in waking and dream, we rise as ego; we experience ourselves as the object, as a, the subject, and we experience so many other things as objects. But in sleep. We do not experience either subject or object. We are aware of ourselves just as I am. So we are something even deeper than the the subject. The subject is ego. That which is aware of itself as I am this body. But what we actually are is not this ego, but the, the I am element of ego, the reality of ego. That is what we actually are and there is never a moment when we are not aware i am so we don't need we don't need to know what we are we just need to know that we are and we need to know that we are clearly aware of ourselves there is not a moment when we do not know ourselves so there's nothing new to be known the problem is not that we don't know ourselves we always know ourselves we always know i am but now instead of knowing ourselves as we actually are, that is, as just as I am, we, we now know ourselves as I am this person. I am Maya, I am Michael, I am this person, I am that person. That is, the, that is a wrong knowledge of ourselves. But even when we know ourselves as I am this or I am that, we still know I am. So leave aside this or that, leave aside Maya, leave aside Michael, leave aside whatever we seem to be, hold on to what we actually are, which is I am. So there's nothing, first we need to, obviously we need to have an understanding that we are not any object. We also need to understand that though we seem to be the subject, we're not even the subject, we are the reality of the subject, the pure awareness I am. If we've understood that, what should we attend to? We should attend to only to ourselves, that is to that fundamental awareness I am. So we we cannot say, I need to know what is myself, which is not this body or mind. We already know ourselves. There's never a moment when we do not know ourselves. Even in sleep, when we do not know anything else, we know I am. So all we need, we know I am, so we need to attend to I am. And then the next question is, how do I exactly attend to myself or be self-attentive when I do not know where the self or myself is localized. Localized means place. Time and space exist where? They exist only in the mind. They exist only in the view of self as ego. So we are not looking for a place where we are localized because all place is a mental fabrication. All locality is a mental fabrication. In whose view do time and space exist? In my view, that's in the view of ourself as ego. So who am I? We need to turn our attention away from time and space, away from all phenomena, back towards ourself, the one to whom all these phenomena appear. And when we turn our attention back to ourselves, at first we seem to be attending to ego, but if we attend closely enough, we see. What we actually are is not ego, but just the pure awareness I am. As I was saying earlier, if you look at the snake carefully enough, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Likewise, if we look at ourselves as ego closely enough, we will see what we actually are is not ego, but just that fundamental awareness I am. We are nothing other than that. So the, the false identification, I am this body, will drop off and the pure awareness I am alone will remain. And then my uh, third question is, can you please explain just be with an example? Well, no example can be given for just be because (laughs) an example is something that it is like, there's nothing that it is like to just be. What is meant by just be? There is never a moment when we are not, So we are always being, but but the term Bhagavan uses in Tamil for just be is summa-irupadu. Summa means just, merely, it implies without any action, but what it actually means, action arises only when, only when we arrive, first we arise as ego, the doer, and then only action takes place. So just being means being without rising as ego. How can we just be without rising as ego? As Bhagavan explained in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, ego is a formless phantom or demon. It's formless because it's got no form of its own. Since it's got no form of its own, it's got no separate existence. It seems to have a separate existence only by grasping some other form and taking that form to be itself. So what, what he says in that verse is, Referring to this formless um, phantom called ego, he says, urupatri undam, grasping form, it comes into existence. urupatri nikam, grasping form, it stands. urupatri undu mika grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. uruvittu urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. So what does he imply by that? He says, grasping form, it comes into existence. So, does it first come into existence and then grasp form, or does it first grasp form and then come into existence? Well, obviously, it can't grasp form before it comes into existence, but it comes into existence that, that is it's grasping form and it's coming into existence as simultaneously because the very nature of ego is to grasp form. So it comes into existence only when it grasps form. So the grasping form and coming into existence or the semi-existence of ego and its grasping form are one of the same thing. So we grasp form, grasping form, we come into existence as ego. Grasping form, we stand as ego. So, what is the first form we grasp? That is this this body. This body meaning the bundle of five sheaves. We cannot uh, rise or stand for a moment as ego without experiencing ourselves as I am this body. So the, that the first form we grasp is the form of a body, and we experience ourselves as I am this body, and. Uh, And then we, through the five senses of that body, we project the world and then the mind is constantly feeding on other forms. Forms here means not only physical forms, form means anything that can be distinguished from any other thing. So anything that has any distinguishing characteristics. So all phenomena, whether physical phenomena or mental phenomena, all are forms of one kind or another. But ego is not a form of any kind whatsoever but though it's not a form, it cannot rise or stand without grasping the form of a body as I am this body. And having grasped the form of a body, it projects all the other things and it's constantly feeding on them. That's what he says, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. What does he mean by grasping? Ego is a form of phantom, so how does it grasp? Grasping means attending. It's only by attending to things other than ourselves that we hold on to them. Um, and, and then he said, leaving form it grasp form. That means it cannot stand for a moment. We, we, as ego, cannot stand for a moment without grasping form. So what would happen if, instead of grasping any form, we try to grasp ourselves alone? Because we are formless. All the forms that we grasp are things other than ourselves. So instead of trying to grasp forms, if we try to grasp ourself, that means instead of attending to anything other than ourselves, if we try to attend to ourselves, what happens? That he says in the next sentence, that literally means if seeking, it takes flight. What he means by if seeking is if ego seeks its own reality. In other words, if ego turns its attention back on itself to see who am I, what actually am I? It will take flight. That means it will run away. How will it run away? That is because we rise and stand as ego by attending to things other than ourselves. When instead of attending to anything other than ourselves, we try to attend to ourselves alone, this ego will begin to subside. The more we attend to ourselves, the more ego subsides. And when ego subsides, it dissolves back into its source the pure being, I am. That, so, subsiding and being as we actually are, that is what Bhagavan means by just be. So, just be means be without rising as ego. In order to avoid rising as ego, we need to hold on to self-attentiveness. So, how to just be? By <laughs> being self-attentive. That is the only way. Incidentally, some of you who watch um, videos on the internet may have come across a, a recent video by a very, um, a very well-known exponent, supposedly of a dwaita, and this person, who has his teachings have over the years they've been deviating further and further away from bhagavan. In one of his recent videos, this was brought to my attention in a recent meeting of. Uh, the london group someone asked and i about this someone but someone has said um someone on the youtube has said but um but self inquiry is just a uh, bhagavan taught self inquiry just as a concession it's not his core teaching his core teaching is just be uh, so uh, self inquiry is just a concession when i was asked that question i didn't know um who had said this, but later I saw in the because when I record, the comments also get recorded. So there's they're they're uh, recorded in a um in a text file. When I looked at that text file, I saw a link to who who is the person who had said this. That, that is the YouTube link was put there. So I, why I say this is if ever any of you come across a video where a well known person or even if anyone else says so it doesn't matter who says it but if anyone says it a well known person or a non well known person if anyone says but um but uh um that self inquiry or self investigation is just a, a concession it's not the core teaching of bhagavan that person has not understood bhagavan at all Bhagavan's teachings are all about self investigation. When Bhagavan says just be, he clarifies how we can just be only by being self attentive. And being self attentive is self investigation. So if we read Bhagavan's original writings, particularly works like Nana, Uludu Napadu, it's very, uh, and also here and there throughout Arunacha's Tutipanchkam, the five hymns. Bhagavan is repeatedly emphasizing that what we need to do is to turn within and attend to ourselves. In other words, self-investigation is absolutely essential. That is the very core of Bhagavan's teachings. That is the very purpose of Bhagavan. Why Bhagavan appeared in human name and form only to teach us this. So I just say this as a warning because the the, the video I, I refer to has is on a YouTube channel that has more than 200,000 subscribers. So mm. this video will be seen by many, many people. And because this person is a person with a high, um, is highly reputed. Um, of course, a person's reputation doesn't count for anything in the spiritual path, but um, in uh, he, he happens to be a person who's highly reputed, who's supposed to be, um, I mean, he charges, I mean, he must be minting a fortune because he charges just to watch his... um What he has on YouTube is just short clips of his videos. If you want to watch his full videos, you have to pay 160 pounds a year subscription. <laughs> so he's someone who is minting money. But whatever it be the case, what he is saying is not... He is totally misrepresenting Bhagavan's teachings. Anyone who says that self-investigation is a, is a concession, or it is not the core teachings of Bhagavan? Is has not understood Bhagavan at all, or if they've understood, they are deliberately misinterpreting Bhagavan.
0: Yeah, I can add to that too, because I have a personal teacher for the last several years uh, who has who's a Ramana guy, and he has told me uh, to be be wary of all the things that are on YouTube. There are thousands of them it might be a slight exaggeration, there's several thousand of them, and many are completely compatible with Ramana's teachings, though many are not, and increasingly so they're not. That's my own observation. He says, stick with Ramana, just, you know, there's enough there to feed us forever, just stick with Ramana. Exactly, exactly. Thank thank you. And I see uh, there's a couple of chat questions, but uh, I'm going to repeat for those people who are new, we get to those in the second part of this program where we invite you to add uh, your own questions either live or via chat and we'll get to those maybe after the next question so uh we'll see uh how long it takes probably after this question michael we'll go there yeah and it's uh so the final printed question or set in question is i lost the name regrettably of the person who sent this someone sent me this quote that is said to be from ramana Maharshi or from possibly a course of miracles Course in Miracles is what brought me to the dance. I mean, in 1989, teaching me about Advaita Vedanta non-duality, it's what built the next 20, 30 years for me to come to where I am today. So a lot of what we hear can be very supportive, although there are misunderstandings, mistranslations, or miscommunications in some of these. Anyways, I wanted uh, you asked for this question, Michael, so I want to see what your answer is about whether or not this is from Ramana or a A reading called A Course in Miracles, and it goes like this. Be still and lay aside all thoughts of what you are and what God is. All concepts you have learned about the world, all images in the world you hold about yourself. Empty your mind of everything it thinks is either true or false, or good or bad. Of every thought it judges worthy, and all the ideas of which it is ashamed. Hold on to nothing. Do not bring with you one single thought the past has taught, nor one belief you have ever learned before from anything. Forget this world, forget this course, and come with holy, empty hands unto your God. And Michael, I'll just add that when I first started reading this, what captured me about it was it began by suggesting, among many lessons, begin the path to non duality by first forgetting everything. You have ever learned. So this could be from the course. What say you? Is it from Ramana or from the Course of Miracles?
1: It is definitely not from Bhagavan.
0: It's um, not from Bhagavan. Okay. So
1: it may be from the course. But how how can we forget everything?
0: <laughs> Bingo. So,
1: so long as the mind is there, the mind will be will be remembering at least something. Even a person with uh, amnesia will remember something. They may not remember their identity. They may not remember everything, but they, they, when they see, for example, a a cup of coffee, they recognize it as a cup of coffee. There's memory are functioning there. If we'd never seen a cup of, if if we had no memory of of coffee of a cup of coffee, we wouldn't recognize one when we see it. So, it is memory is a. Part and parcel of the fabric of the mind so we all are, when we recognize things when we I mean memory is 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 such an intricate part of the mind we cannot forget everything so long as we rise as ego we do forget everything every night when we fall asleep but uh falling asleep is going into a state of mono layer that's not that's not helpful for us in the spiritual path. So one thing, we cannot forget everything so long as the mind is active. Also, how to lay aside all thoughts, all concepts, how can we do that? There are techniques, yoga teaches techniques for putting aside all thoughts, that is by pranayama and other techniques, yogis are able to That that is the aim of yoga. Patanjali says right at the beginning of his Yoga Sutra, in the second or third sutra, that is when he actually begins talking, I think it's in the second sutra, when he actually begins um, to teach something. The first thing he says is he defines what is yoga. Yoga is chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is curbing or stopping or restraining the activity of the mind. That is what that's the whole aim of yoga. What Bhagavan said about this is that is not a proper aim. Because every night when we fall asleep, we 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 stop all mental activity. But the stopping of mental activity results in manolaya. This is why Bhagavan often used to tell the story of a yogi on the banks of the Ganga. This yogi was very adept in going into Nivikalpa Samadhi. Nivikalpa Samadhi is a state of manolaya. It's a state where all thought ceases. So this yogi was very adept by years of practice of pranayama or whatever other techniques he was using. He was able to go into Nivikalpa Samadhi uh, very easily. And he would spend prolonged periods in Nivikalpa Samadhi, sometimes for days on end. And he lived in a small hut on the banks of the Ganga, just outside a village. And because he were, the, the villagers and other local people, they saw this, um, this sadhu constantly uh, in a state of uh, un- oblivious to the world, they imagined he's in a very high spiritual state. So one of the villagers became a, who also wanted to be like that, he, he um, became a disciple of that, uh, that yogi. And one day, when the yogi had been in Nivikalpa Samadhi for several days, he woke up and he was feeling thirsty. So he asked his disciple to go and fetch water from the Ganga. So the disciple went to fetch water from the Ganga. But before he returned, the yogi had gone again into Nivikalpa Samadhi. And this time he went into Nivikalpa Samadhi so deeply that he remained in that state for 300 years. In those 300 years, Bhagavan told the story, in a, he uh, embellished it in so many ways. He said, in those 300 years, the Ganga had changed course. So after 300 years, it was several miles away. Because the Ganga had changed course, the village had also moved. A jungle had grown up around this um, sadhu. And also, not only that, so many historical events had happened, but Muslims had started to invade North India. So after 300 years, it was a completely different world um, from uh, what it had been 300 years before. This yogi woke up after 300 years, and the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where's my water? What Bhagavan said about that is, this illustrates but the last thought that was in his mind before he went into nirvikalpa Samadhi was the first thought that arose in his mind when he woke up from nirvikalpa Samadhi. That means even the most superficial thought in the mind is not destroyed by nirvikalpa Samadhi. So when the, even the most superficial thought is not destroyed, what to say about all the vasanas? Staying in Nivikalpa Samadhi for 300 years is of no more use than falling asleep for 300 years. There's some one of the European folk tales, is a story about one man who um, who went to uh, a village person. He went to a nearby forest and he fell asleep. And he woke up after 100 years and came back to his village. And of course, everything had changed and nobody recognized him and everything. It's a similar story to that. But whereas that story is about someone falling asleep, this is about someone being in samadhi. But according to Bhagavan, Nivikalpa samadhi, like sleep, is just a state of manolaya. Being in manolaya is of no use. We cannot progress spiritually in manolaya. Of course, we need to sleep every night because when we rise as ego, we we expend a lot of energy projecting this world and thinking and doing so many things. Every um, 16 hours or so, we, uh, we get uh, tired and we need to fall asleep. So, sleep is fine, we need to sleep, and there's a limit to how long we can sleep. But by yoga, you can artificially bring us about a state like sleep, called nirvikalpa samadhi, and you can remain in that for a prolonged period. People may ask nowadays, how could this yogi stay, uh, survive for 300 years? Nobody lives for 300 years, but when they go, when uh, the truly adept yogis, when they go deep into Nivikalpa Samadhi, their body goes into, um, that everything slows down. Their heart rate may slow down to one beat a a minute. They're breathing just one breath a minute or one very shallow breath a minute. But there's just enough activity of the body that is the... The prana, the physiological functions of the body, are ticking on at just sufficient rate to keep the body alive. But because it's going on so slowly, very little aging takes place. Because the aging it takes place because of, the, because of the physiological functions that are going on in the body. When the physiological functions are brought almost to a standstill, brought to a very, very slow rate, the body can live for a long time. So that that is but anyway the point of the story why Bhagavan told this story is to illustrate that merely stopping the chitta vrittis is of no use. It is just mano and mano doesn't enable us to weaken the vasanas. So vasana needs to be done in the waking and dream state when we rise as ego. In mano ego is dissolved. So. Merely emptying our mind, really trying to stop thought, is not a proper aim. That is the aim of yoga, but Bhagavan said that is not a proper aim. So in Upadesha India, Bhagavan also, so that is Bhagavan, what Bhagavan is doing in Upadesha India, he talks about other paths, he talks about Nishkamiya karma, he talks about bhakti in the form of Nishkamiya puja, Nishkamiya japa, Nishkamiya dhyana. but he talks about these things just to show how they must eventually lead to self-investigation. That is, they, they 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 find their fruition or their culmination in self-investigation in exactly the same way about yoga. He talks about yoga. He says in verses 11 and 12, he says, he points out that the mind and the breath both share a common source so if you control one you control the other if you if you calm down your breathing if you if you, you don't even have to practice pranayama if you merely observe the breathing that will slow down the breathing and it will also calm down the mind so if ever you are in a very agitated state and you want to calm yourself down just observe your breathing that's not the most effective way, the most effective way is to observe yourself. But if you've got an outward going mind, one way of calming down the mind is simply to observe the breathing. By observing the breathing, the breathing will become more even and more, it'll calm down, and then the mind will calm down. And likewise, if you calm down the mind, the, the breathing will calm down. The two are connected. It's like having, in a if you've got um one switch in a room but controls both the light and the fan. If you switch on the the light, the fan will come on. If you switch on the fan, the light will come on because they're controlled by the same switch. And if you've got a dimmer switch, you can you can slow you can dim the light and the fan will slow down. You can uh, speed up the fan and the light will become brighter because they're con- controlled by the same switch in exactly the same way. The 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 prana the breathing and other physiological functions and the mind are very closely connected so if you control one you control the other so that's what basically what bhagavan points out in um in verse uh, 11 and 12 of upadesha Undiya. then in verse 13 he says dissolution of mind is of two kinds layer and nasa if it if it subsides in layer it will rise again, if its form dies in nasha nasa, it will not rise again. So nasa means permanent dissolution of mind. Leya means just temporary dissolution of mind. And in Bhagwan also talks about pranayama in the eighth paragraph of Nana, and he concludes that paragraph by saying, therefore pranayama is just an aid to control the mind, but will not bring about mano nasa. So all you can achieve by yoga, by pranayama and other yoga techniques, the furthest you can go is to manolaya, but that's of no use. So what Bhagavan said, that's in verse 13, he said, there are two types of dissolution, leya and nasa. Then in verse 14, he gives very, very good advice there to uh, yogis. He says, if the mind which will subside by controlling the breath, only if that mind is sent on the all will its form die. or bari is a very nice term in Tamil. Vari means path. Or can be interpreted in two ways here. Or is a verb that means to investigate or know. So or bari can mean or vari, the investigating path or the knowing path. In other words, the path of self-investigation. Or can also be a form of aru. Oru means one, but if you put aru before a uh, a word with a verb, you you can't say aru aru um, aham one eye. You you have to say or aham. You you just like in English we had a and an. We we can say you can't say a apple. You have to say an apple. So in the same way in Tamil, if you're talking about an apple, you can't say oru apple, you have to say an apple, you have to say all apple. So all means one. So or vari means has two meanings. It means the one path and the path of investigation. Both these mean the same, because according to Bhagavan, the one path by which you can destroy the mind is self-investigation. So when he says, if we interpret it as one path, it's not just any one path, it's not just walking down your garden path or something you're going to, to you go well, one path means the path of self-investigation. In the Sanskrit version, he uses the term ekachintana, one thought. When Devrajamudlia asked Bhagavan in day by day, what is that one thought? Bhagavan is very careful not to commit himself. So he said it can be any one thought, but that is not the real thing. What is what Bhagavan means by Ekachintana. Ekachintana means the thought of Ekka, of the one. What is the one? According to Advaita philosophy, there is one only without a second. Ekam eva advaitiam. And what is that one? Sateva. existence alone. So, and as Bhagavan says in uh, the seventh paragraph of Nana, the previous paragraph of Nana, he begins by saying, what actually exists is only the real nature of ourself. So what is the one that we need to think of? The one thing that actually exists. So ekachintana also implies thinking of the one, in other words, thinking of ourself, in other words, being self-attentive. So what Bhagavan implies in verse 14 is that or in verses fourteen and uh, thirteen and fourteen. In verse thirteen, he says there are two types of dissolution: layer or nasa. The implication is by by uh, pranayama or other yoga practices, you can only attain mano layer. But if you want to attain mano nasa, if you're a yogi and you're using breath uh, pranayama to calm down your mind. Before the mind subsides in layer, when the mind has been calmed down, then you need to send it on this path of self-investigation. Then only its mind will, its form will die. So why I say all this, Ted, this passage talks all about, um, uh, uh, lay aside all thoughts, all concepts you've learned, empty your mind, um, of everything, uh, Hold on to nothing. Firstly, if you empty your mind, you'll end up in a state like sleep. Uh, it may be called by a fancy name as nirvikalpa Samadhi, but it's no more useful than sleep. If you try to hold on to nothing, how can you hold on to nothing? The very nature of uh, of ego is always to be holding on to something. So ego cannot remain for a moment without holding on to something. If you don't hold on to something, that the ego will subside in in Manolaya. The practical way, as Bhagavan said, is not to hold on to nothing, which is most of us can't hold on to nothing. But if you're a yogi and have practiced these techniques, you can come to a point where you're holding on to nothing and thereby you subside in Nivhikalpa Samadhi, which is of no use. What Bhagavan says we need to hold on to is to hold on to ourselves, because only if you if we hold on to nothing when we fall asleep we hold on to nothing that is so long throughout the waking and dream state we're constantly holding on to things other than ourselves we're constantly attending to things other than ourselves but when we fall asleep we're too tired to um continue holding on to anything <laughs> so we hold on to nothing and we fall asleep what we need to hold on to is to hold on to ourselves. Because if we hold on to ourselves, we will not subside in manolea Because we'll be clearly aware of ourselves. We'll be holding on to ourselves. So the subsidence that is brought about by self-attentiveness is not manole but manonasa. Until man, if we hold on to self-attentive firmly enough, we will, the mind will not dissolve until. It subsides completely and dissolves permanently in manu, in manonasa. So when Bhagavan says only when the mind only when the mind which uh, would which, which subsides as a result of um, controlling the breath, only if that mind is sent on the orvari, that means only if it is holding on to itself. So it's only by holding on to ourselves that we can bring about manonasa. But obviously, when Bhagavan says that in verse 14, obviously the implication is before we subside in layer, we need to send the mind on the, the path of self-investigation. Because once we subside in layer, there's no one remaining there to send the mind on self-investigation. So we need to before the mind dissolves in layer, we need to direct it back within towards ourselves. And if we direct it within keenly enough, then only when it will its form die. So merely forgetting the world, forgetting the ah, you see, there's a it is the course of miracles because see this. Forget this, the last sentence says, forget this world, forget this course. It's referring to the course in miracles, and come with holy empty hands unto God. If you forget everything, let go of everything, hold on to nothing you will not come to God. You'll only end up in layer. Of course, <laughs> what shines in layer is only God, but you won't know God as he actually is, because when you wake up, you'll if if you've fallen asleep, it will seem to you that it was a state of darkness. The yogis say the difference between sleep and Nivikalpa Samadhi is that in Nivikalpa Samadhi, you continue to be aware. In sleep, you cease to be aware. Bhagavan uh, Point out, out about this, even when you fall asleep, you continue to be aware. The reason why uh, yogis say a subsidence in Manalaya is subsidence in light, whereas subsidence in sleep is subsidence in darkness, is that they fail to recognize the light that is shining even in sleep. Because they bring about the Nirvakalpa Samadhi deliberately, they're able to recognize that the light of awareness continues in that state. they even after being in that state they still fail to recognize that sleep the the same light continues to shine even in sleep so Nivakalpa samadhi is not a state of jnana it's not a state of knowledge it's just a state of subsidence of mind and when the mind, it's a state of layer, temporary subsidence of mind. So the mind will rise again. And as Bhagavan says in the eighth paragraph of Nana, when he talks about this, he says, "I'm saying now. Just read what he says here. Um, I'll read the early from the beginning of the paragraph. I'll read the first few sentences. For the mind to cease or subside." You know, here Bhagavan he implies the permanent cessation of mind. For the mind to cease, other than vicharana, or except vicharana, except self-investigation, there are no other adequate means. If made to cease or subside by other means, the mind, remaining for a while as if it had ceased, will rise again. Even by pranayama, pranayama means breath restraint, the mind will cease. Cease here means temporally cease, it will subside. However, so long as the prana remains subsided, mind will also remain subsided. And when the prana emerges, it, meaning the mind, will also emerge and wander under the sway of its vasanas. Here Bhagavan is giving us a clue. The vasanas are not destroyed in... Mano They're not destroyed in nirvikalpa Samadhi. When the, when, the, uh, when the mind emerges from nirvikalpa Samadhi, it will resume wandering under the sway of its vāsanas, as illustrated by that story of the yogi on the banks of the Ganga, who went into nirvikalpa Samadhi for 300 years. As soon as his mind rose, it started wandering under the same old vāsanas, where's my water? And because he was a rather irritable fellow, he got angry, where's my water? Because he didn't like coming out of his Nivhikalpa Samadhi. Nivhikalpa Samadhi is very pleasant. If you come out of Nivhikalpa Samadhi, you have to face this world. Not at all nice. So since he enjoys his Nivhikalpa Samadhi, he's very irritated to come out and to be troubled by things like thirst. So he asked angrily, where's my water? So that is the mind wandering. That is illustrating what Bhagavan says here. When the mind emerges from layer, it will wander under the sway of its vasanas. So, what is what is taught here in this particular um, this particular um, passage from a course in miracles? This is not Bhagavan's teaching. This is yoga, and you will. This is not the way to come to God. If you want to come to God, you need to give yourself to God. And as Bhagavan explains in now, the only way to give ourselves to God is to hold on to self-attentiveness so firmly that we give no room to the rising of other thoughts. That is, our aim is not to stop other thoughts rising, our aim is to hold on to ourself. If we hold on to ourself firmly enough, there will be no room for any other thought to arise, because thoughts arise only in our awareness. So, thoughts cannot arise if we don't attend to them. So, if we're, our whole attention is fixed firmly on ourself, there'll be no room for other thoughts to arise. So, in Bhagavan's path, the cessation of thoughts is a byproduct of holding on to self attentiveness. It is not the aim. Because if we make subsidence of thoughts the aim, we'll end up just in Nirvikalpa Samadhi or some other state of Manalaya. That's useless. We achieve that state every night when we fall asleep. So why to spend years practicing yoga just to achieve what we achieve every night when we fall asleep? Our aim is not to stop thoughts. Our aim is to know who am I. If we know who am I, that will destroy ego, the root thought, and therefore it will destroy all other thoughts. But that is not our aim. Destruction of thought, as Bhagavan said, let them appear or disappear. What is it to us? He ends... Uh, in verse 6 of Arunach Ashtakam, he talks about how the world is projected, like he uses the analogy of a cinema, and he he, he implies the whole world is nothing but thoughts, but he ends the verse saying, nindrida sendrida Ninevida Vindray, let them appear or let them disappear, they are not other than you. What does he imply by that? Our entire attain- what do you mean by you there? Is Arunachala, and as he said in the first line of that verse, what is Arunachala? Undaru porul arivoli That is, there is, um, there is one substance. You, there is one substance, uh, the light of awareness, the heart, you alone. Um, so Arunachala is the. Is the heart? It's the one real substance. It's the light of awareness. That is what Aaron actually is. So when he says in the last line, "Let them appear or let them let them continue or let them stop. They're not other than you." He means let these thoughts appear or disappear. That shouldn't be our concern. Our only concern should be to always attend to what is shining in our heart, the light of awareness that is always shining in our heart. As I am, that is the one reality. That is what we should hold on to.
0: Wow. Thank you, Michael. A very thorough answer. And uh, speaking it, as a it, person... it's
1: important to understand this because many, many people, they, people say, I was I I'm practicing self-inquiry and I sit for 20 minutes without any thoughts. That is not self-inquiry.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got that message from you a long time ago and I yeah. and it sunk in. It's yeah. it's actually quite useful still today. Uh, and as speaking as one person who swore by <laughs> I gotta be careful how I say this, uh, the tenets of what's called a Course in Miracles from thirty-four years ago, I have to say it brought me to you. It brought me to Ramana but and if I am it very, brought
1: very you to Bhama, that. that is sufficient. It has served its purpose.
0: Thank you. Well, guess what? We've spent so much time doing that. We only have 29 minutes left, so we're going to get to hopefully a a fast round of live questions here. Vijaya, you've had your hand up. Must be very tired. Uh, What's your question? And could you make it succinct? And we'll get as many in as we can.
2: Okay, it's the same question that I had. I emailed you yesterday. So regarding the doership, uh, Namaskaram, uh, Michael. Namaskaram. Uh, so can we say that this doership uh, can be a pointer or uh, to the ego, because generally it's very hard to distinguish ego from the actual Satchit, you know, it, it, because it's all mixed up, uh, you know, in day to day activity in order to remain in satchit, uh, you know, we, we need to have that separation, right? Uh, I don't know how to put it in words. Yeah. So will this doership, will that be kind of a pointer? So that whenever we that doership, whenever that arises, so we can realize, oh, that's the ego, and we can remain in satchit.
1: That is, ego is satchit. What ego actually is, is only satchit. Just like the snake is only a rope. The difference between the snake and the rope is not a difference in substance. It's a difference in appearance. Likewise, the difference between such and ego is not a difference in substance, they're one and the same thing, The difference is only a difference in appearance. Ego is what, a, it, it, its reality is nothing but satchit, but it seems to be something other than satchit, because instead of being, as ego, we are not aware of ourselves as just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am, but not just I am. We're aware of ourselves as, um, I am Vijay Lakshmi, I am Michael, whatever. So that adjunct mixed awareness is ego. Vijay Lakshmi is the name of a person. That person is a body consisting of five sheaves. The five sheaves are the... The body, the physical form of the body, what is called the anamaya kosha, the life, but is that the, all the physiological functions—the breathing, the heartbeat, and the digestion—all the physiological functions that are going, and the, all the fibers, C fibers firing in the brain, and whatever else—neuroscientists. This is all prana. This is all the activity of prana. So these neuroscientists who think they're researching on consciousness are actually just researching on prana because it's, all, whatever's happening in the brain, it's all part of the, the, the physiological function, which is what prana means. Um, the, um, the mind, or manamaya kosha, in this context, mind means the, gross, the grosser functions of the mind. That is perception, memory, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on. That's all called manamaya kosha. Subtler than manamaya kosha is the intellect, that is, but that's the reasoning, judging, discriminating, uh, the part of the mind that is able to see things clearly. But that's still an object; it's still a function of the mind. Subtler than that is, uh, is the um the intellect is called vijnanamaya kosha. Subtler than that is the will, the chittam, which is what is called anandamaya kosha. That consists of all the vasanas which are the seeds that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, and so on. So it's called Chittam, or the will. Um, so these five make up the person called Vijaya Lakshmi. Ego is not any of these five sheaths. Ego is that which is aware of all these five sheaths as I am Vijaya Lakshmi. So, the, but the I in I am Vijaya Lakshmi... Is such it? That is, I am Vijay Lakshmi Is chit-chara-granti. Chit-chara-granti. Chit Jada Granti? Chit Granti. means the pure awareness. Such it. Um, uh, uh, jada refers to the body, which is is Jada. Jada means it's not aware. Granti means a not. That is when when awareness and this body, which is not aware, that when these get entangled, when they get conflated, when they seem to be the same thing, the resulting knot is what is called Chit granthi. That is ego. So, ego is not such it, it is not the body. It is the, it is the knot that results when the two get entangled. Of course, such it is never entangled, but in the view of ourselves as ego, such seems to be entangled. Okay. so so we, we can always distinguish ego from satchit because of the adjuncts. bhagavan has made this clear in um in upadesha Undia verses um verses 24 and 25 what he says in verse 24 of, of upadesha Undia is irakum by by existing nature that is in their nature which is existence, Isa Oru God and soul are one substance. In other words, they're just one thing. They're, they're both are satchit, That is their irukumirke, Their existing nature is satchit, What he talked about in the previous verse. So what is the difference between God and soul? verundi para. that is the, the, the adjunct awareness alone is different. The adjunct awareness is this false awareness I am this body. So it is this false awareness I am this body but makes us seem to be something other than God. So what we need to do is to see ourselves without adjuncts. So in the next verse, he says, seeing oneself without adjuncts is seeing God, because God always shines as oneself. So the fundamental awareness I am is such it. When that fundamental awareness I am, seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts. Of course, it's never mixed and conflated, but in the view of e- ourself as ego, it seems to be mixed and conflated. That that adjunct-conflated awareness is what is called ego. Um, do How does doership arise? Because this bundle of five sheaves has three instruments of action, the mind, the mind, the speech and the body. Because we experience this bundle of five sheaths as ourself, when the mind is thinking, we experience I am thinking. When the tongue is talking, I am talking. When the the body is walking or sitting or uh, lying down or whatever, I am sitting, I am walking, I am lying down. So doership is the very nature of ego. Ego can never be free of doership. If if we want to be free of doership, we need to be free of ego. So ego is the false awareness. I am this body. It's a wrong awareness of ourselves because this body is not what we actually are. We exist even in dream without being aware of this body. We exist in sleep without being aware of any body whatsoever. So this body is or none of these five sheaths are what we actually are. Because in sleep we exist without any of the five sheaths. Though in many sastras it is said anandamaya kosha remains there, Bhagavan has clarified that is just an answer to the question of others. For people who want to know, how does ego come into existence again, as if ego had ever really come into existence? For then, such an answer is given. But according to Bhagavan, in sleep, there is no ego. There's nothing except the pure awareness I am. Um, And if we think of it, that's our experience. We're not aware of of, uh, of any vasanas in sleep. So why should we suppose that they're still there? When we are not there, how can, the bas- how can our vasanas be there in our absence? That is, we as ego are not there, but we as we actually are, are there. As the pure I am, we are there in sleep. So the, the doership is the very nature of ego because we identify, we, the nature of ego to always identify itself as a body consisting of five she's. So your question is, let me come back because I, yeah, um, uh, Ted has sent me your question, you said, um, explains about khatrutva buddhi. Uh, uh, Khatrutva buddhi means sense of doership, which forms the impediment to realizing the self. That is, khatrutva buddhi, the sense of doership is the nature of ego. Ego is the impediment. Uh, So it's part and parcel of the impediment. It's not just the doership, but it's the impediment. It's the one who has the sense of doership, namely ego. How does one get away with this doership which forms the false eye? That is the only way to get rid of doership is to to know ourselves as we actually are, because the ego is a false awareness of ourself. It can be destroyed only by correct awareness of ourself. When you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, the idea that it is a snake is a false knowledge The only way to get rid of that false knowledge is to see what it actually is. If you look at it to see what sort of snake is it? Is it a grass snake or a cobra or a this snake or that snake? If you look at it carefully enough, what do you say? Oh, it's not a snake at all, it's just a rope. So likewise, if we look at ourselves carefully enough, we will see what we actually are and thereby ego is destroyed. So all we need to do the solution to all problems and the only solution to all problems is this simple practice of self investigation, which is not a mere concession, as some, some uh, wise people like to say. That is the very heart of Bhagavan's teaching. That is what, that's the very purpose of the Ramana Avatara, is to come and give us this practice. Because Advaita philosophy has been there for thousands of years. From the time of the Upanishads, there's a dwaita clearly expressed in the Upanishads. Why then do we need Bhagavan? What's the purpose of Bhagavan coming? Because though people have been talking about Advaita, giving lectures on Advaita for millennia, what is the practical implication of all this? That is what people have missed. So to highlight the practical implication of all of, all of Vedanta... Bhagavan, it, it was necessary for Lord Shiva, who gave the, the the Upanishads in the first place. He's the source from which all the Upanishads came. All the Vedas came from where? Only from, from Brahman, from the ultimate reality, from Arunachya Shiva, which is Bhagavan. So Bhagavan is the source of all of Vedanta, so he has come to point out to us dull heads who failed to understand the, the practical import of Vedanta, he came in the form of Bhagavan to teach us that the very purpose of all of Vedanta is to turn our attention back to ourselves. In other words, self-investigation is the aim of all of Vedanta. Okay. So it is not a mere concession. I keep on saying that because I, I just can't believe but this person who has such a reputation who some years ago seemed to be coming he seemed to be better than the other waiter teachers <laughs> but yes. he's now dr- drifting further and further away but I mean it's it's just unbelievable that he could actually have uh, um had the uh,
2: <laughs> I yeah, understand yeah, whom yeah, you're yeah, pointing yeah, to, and yeah. even I used to listen to him for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So I understand whom you're pointing to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I seriously but, feel sad about it,
1: yes. But, but if we don't have self-investigation, all all of Vedanta, all of the Vedas are useless without self-investigation. All philosophy in the world, all science, everything is useless without self-investigation. Because only self investigation can solve this problem, so that is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Bhagavan expresses it beautifully in verse thirty-one of Ulladu Napadu. Um, <clears throat> that is, if you go to, if you go and listen to lectures on um, that, the people who expound classical Advaita, they will spend hours and hours explaining tattvamasi. What is tat? What is tvum? In what sense tat is tum? And they will even say, it's not sufficient to investigate tvum. You also need to investigate tat. That's missing the whole point. Tat is tvum. There's no two things there. There's no tat and tvum. The whole point of the Mahabakhya is because till now our attention has been going outward, looking for God or Brahman or happiness or knowledge or whatever, we're looking for it outside ourselves. The purpose of the Mahabhakyas is to say, stop looking outside, you yourself for that, look at yourself. That is the implication. So Bhagavan has expressed it beautifully in verse 31 of Um no, sorry. I verse thirty-two is what I mean. Sorry, verse thirty-two of Uddhava Yes, but the meaning of, of this verse is, when the Vedas proclaim that is you, instead of oneself knowing oneself as what, thinking I am that, not this, is due to non-existence of strength, because that alone is always seated as oneself. So. Bhagavan has put it very tersely here, but what does he imply here? What he implies is as soon as we hear this uh, Mahavakya, you are that, what should our immediate response be? Oh, if I am that, then what am I? That is the purpose is to turn our attention. Instead of inquiring what is Brahman, we are told, you are that. Brahman is you. So when they say You are that. Our response should be I am what? We should turn our attention back to investigate who am I? What am I? Instead of, and by investigating ourselves, we would thereby know and be what we actually are. That is, it's, in order to be what we actually are, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. In order to know ourselves as we actually are, we need to investigate ourselves. Instead of investigating ourselves and thereby knowing ourselves as we actually are and being ourselves as we actually are, thinking, I am that, not this, is due to non existence of strength. When he says non existence of strength, he means firstly, the strength of Viveka. We haven't really understood the meaning of Mahavakya. If we begin to think I am that, that is missing the point. Since we are that, there is no that other than we. So all we need to meditate on is not on the thought I am that, but on I am alone. So we thinking I am that, not this, that's a mental activity. Attending to ourselves is a cessation of all mental activity. So those who, who think, I am, I am consciousness, I mean, some people, even among Bhagavan devotees, they fail to understand this. Some, there, are, there are books on uh, by devotees of Bhagavan, people who claim to be gurus, who, who say that you have to can constantly remind yourself, I am awareness, I am consciousness. I mean, if you keep on remembering I am consciousness, that is uh, self inquiry. No, that is not. That is just uh, non existence of strength. Uruan in <inaudible> Bhagavan says, what we need to do is only to investigate I. By knowing I, we uh, by, by investigating I, we know I. By knowing I, we remain as I. Because that, uh, because that Brahman is always shining; it's always seated as oneself. He says that means it's always existing and shining as I. So we need not meditate on anything other than I. So Bhagavan had the whole purpose of Bhagavan's teaching is to highlight what is the practical implication of all of Vedanta. And he has highlighted that in just in the twenty paragraphs of Nana. And in the 250 original verses that he he wrote, that is all we need. And though he wrote 250 verses, essentially he's saying pretty much the same thing again and again in each and every verse. They're all pointing in the same direction, pointing our attention back at ourselves.
0: Thank okay, thank you very much. Uh, so, for, so uh, Ted, uh, Ted,
1: Ted, yes, v- Vijay Lakshmi did as you said, she kept the question short. I'm a disobedient child, well, I, I never keep the answer short.
0: Then I'm going to give you your match right now because <laughs> I was going to call earlier if I thought we had enough time, and I don't think we do. But I'm going to call him to ask his question. Uh, we have two stewards here. One's new and the one who is new is uh, stored up there with a waving hand. And he he noticed he notified me in the chat box that he sent the question that he wants you to answer as an email to me. But he's here. Go ahead and ask it yourself. And if if Michael, I'll give you a pass, because this may require somewhat of a long answer to his question. <laughs> can you read it? We can't read it from there. Stuart, can you read it to us? Nope, unmute yourself first. And if you think this might take an hour to answer, we'll take it next next month. Let's see. I think, I think
3: um, in Michael time, this is less than, I'm not gonna speculate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very easy, it's very easy, I think. Okay, so this is from your uh, benedictory verse translation, verse one, mm-hmm. benedictory verse translation. I'll read the whole verse short if what exists were not would existing awareness exist since the existing substance exists in the heart without thought how to think of the existing substance which is called heart quote unquote okay here's my question being in the heart as it is alone is thinking no being in the heart as it is alone is thinking what what does that mean? Okay, that is the 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 previous sentence asks how
1: to think of that, how to think of Brahman, how to meditate. The implication is how to meditate on Brahman. Okay, since since it's beyond thought, how can we think of
3: it? Right. Good. Yeah.
1: We can think of it only by be that is thinking here is used metaphorically. We're not literally thinking of it. We can, in order to meditate on Brahman, we can we can know Brahman only by being Brahman. We can meditate on Brahman only by being as it
3: is. I see. So how to think is a, is, is not no, is a direct... but, but, but Bhagavan
1: is saying asking this for a pub because people, everyone talks about Brahma Dhyana, meditating on Brahman. So Bhagavan is answering in this, how can we meditate on Brahman?
3: How could you think about Brahman when it's beyond thought? Yeah,
1: exactly. That's what Bhagavan is saying. Though it is beyond thought, it exists in the heart, and it is called heart. That heart means, heart means I. What is the heart of everything? I am the heart. I am is the heart. and. Very nicely, there's there's a a lot of different layers of meaning in this verse. For example, when he said, which is called the heart, the word he uses for heart is ullam. Mm. That that is, the the root ul means what is within. So ullam Mm. is a common word in Tamil, particularly in philosophical or spiritual literature, for heart. It's also sometimes used for mind. We can also refer to the mind as ulum. Bhagavan often use the word ulum referring to the mind uh, because it means what is inside. But ulum, ul is also a verb meaning to be. So the, the, um, it's a tenseless verb. And the, that is the, the, the word uladu, that which exists, is derived from this verb ul. Which means to be or to exist. So the the first person plural form of ul is ullom. But there's a literary form of ulom, which is ullam. So ullam also means we are. Mm-hmm. Well, but obviously it's not referring to we in a plural sense, but one often uses the word we as a as a inclusive form of a first-person pronoun. If he says I, he's excluding us. If he says you, he's excluding himself. But he says we and in Tamil there are two we's. There's nangal which is excluding and nam which is including. So this is the including we. So "ulom" means we are. So um, which implies I am. So the heart is what is called I am. That's another meaning there.
3: So, very, it. it it's a it's a very very deep and subtle verse. Yeah. So he's he's making a concession here. <laughs> being in the heart as it is alone is thinking. He is the, not.
1: He is not making any concession at all. He is saying you cannot think of Brahman except by being it, and, and of I'm course mean. that is not thinking. That's not what I'm, Yeah, exactly. That we're <laughs> yeah. thinking. He's he using the word think, he points out, that we cannot literally think of Brahman. Because yeah. if we think of Brahman, we just, we don't know Brahman. How can we think of something that we, we, if we think of Brahman, we are thinking only of the idea, our idea of Brahman. What is Brahman? Something very big, ananda this, that. We've got so many ideas about Brahman, but we don't know mm-hmm. Brahman. So to, to, what Brahman actually is, is what is shining in the heart as I. In order to meditate on I, we need to be we need to be as it is in the heart. Right. In other words, we need to turn our attention back within and thereby subside into the heart and remain as we actually are.
3: The, the thinking is metaphorical.
1: It's it's metaphorical, metaphorical. But but when using thinking metaphorically so often, in, in Nana, he says, the um, the thought, who am I? Um, destroying all other thoughts will eventually itself be destroyed, just like the stick used for stirring the funeral pyre. He took he refers to who am I there as the thought who am I. But that's just a metaphorical because what when we think of something, we direct our attention towards it. Since we investigating who am I is directing our attention towards ourselves, we can metaphorically call it the thought who am I, or Atmachintana thought of oneself swarupa dhyana meditating on one's real nature these are all just they because what bhagavan is talking about is beyond thoughts and words often metaphorical language is the is the most effective way to convey what he is saying so he often talks metaphorically we need to understand when he's talking metaphorically when he's talking literally
0: <laughs> and that comes with practice.
1: Yes, Michael, yes. We're,
0: we're going to have to wrap things up here. Okay. I want to thank Stuart. Stuart, thank you very much. We yeah. you squeezed your question in under the line. We got a total... Is,
1: that is the most important verse. That verse is, is the deepest, and, and your whole of Uludhunapadu is packed in that verse. We can say the rest of Uludhunapadu, all the other 40 verses, are just a commentary. That's why if we read that per, word, word verse first, we won't understand it. But if we read and understand the rest of what then the meaning of that verse will become clear.
0: Good, 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 good. Michael, we have a whole lot of questions still left over, and I think instead <laughs> of asking, I think instead of asking for questions for a month from now, October, first Sunday in October, we'll just continue to whittle away at that list of questions that we haven't gotten to, if that's okay with you.
1: But, but if anyone wants to send questions, because um some questions are more more useful than others, so it's quite mm, good sure. having a having a wide range because that allows me to to choose yeah. the questions that I think will be of greatest practical value. Because ultimately, what this is all about is about practice.
0: Okay. So do you clarifying you want me then do... the
1: practice. So if people want to send in more questions, by all means, let them do so.
0: Okay, good. Then I'll open the door for more questions in about three or four weeks, about three weeks from now. Right. Michael, thank you as always. It's a fast two hours. I'm I'm impressed that you got around to six answers today, yes. which is pretty good. <laughs> I'm getting better. <laughs> That's ahead of the curve. Uh, and have a great month. And we'll see you as the year starts to fritter away. We'll be in yeah. October when we see your smiling face again. Right. And thank you to all of you for joining us today. Got new people again, as always. And some a lot, a lot of regulars who have been with us for years with Michael on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, many yeah. blessings to everybody. And we'll see you next week for those who are with us every week. And I invite newcomers to join us. And for those who you come on first Sundays, we'll see you in a month. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Take care. Uh,